Thanks, Naomi, for praying for us and with us. Uh, and good morning, everyone. It's good to be able to add to Simon's welcome that he gave earlier. And if you have your Bible, please do open with me now to Revelation chapter 3, either in your physical Bible, switch on your phone, however you follow along. It'll be really good to have that in front of you as we look at it together. This morning, we're looking at Revelation chapter 3, verse 7 to 13, the letter to the church in Philadelphia. And when we say Philadelphia, that's not the big city in America. That's the small first century city named Philadelphia in what is today modern-day Western Turkey, after which the American city is named. Just over six years ago, I had the privilege of ministering at the bedside of a dying elderly member of this congregation by the name of George Dorman, the father of Brian and Alan. George was very weak in his hospital bed, struggling to breathe, and so he had an oxygen mask over his mouth to help him breathe. And at one point in our time together, just at the bedside, in George's last days, last moments, George sort of pulled down his oxygen mask and he, he said, and I had to go close to hear him, he said, Steve, I feel like that woman in the Gospels who's just reaching out and trying to grip onto Christ's robe. I'm just trying to hang on. And it was a joy to be able to remind George in that moment of the fact that it was not ultimately George's grip on Christ that counted in that moment. It was Christ's grip on George. And that's what I said. I said, George, remember, it's not the strength of your grip on him that ultimately counts. It's the strength of his grip on you. He's holding you, and he's promised never to let go. And I remember George put up his oxygen mask, and he smiled, and he just went, yes. And he put his head back in the pillow and rested in the goodness of that gospel truth. It was a very special moment. These are some of the great privileges of being a pastor. I start with that story because the purpose of the letter to the church in Philadelphia is to help the believers then who were in Philadelphia receiving the letter and us now to rest our weary souls in the goodness of that gospel truth. The Lord writes to weary believers in Philadelphia and he wants them to rest in the strength of his grip on their lives. Where most of the letters that we've studied in these opening chapters of Revelation contain a period in the letter of rebuke or correction for local believers, this letter to the Christians in Philadelphia is just pure encouragement. Encouragement to Christians feeling physically and spiritually weak, who might be wondering if they're going to make it through the trials of this world and remain faithful unto the end. We can do that at times in certain moments. We know in our hearts we're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. 
prone to leave the God we love. And sometimes we can have seasons where we really battle assurance because we fear one day, am I going to wander and never come back? Well, at the very center of this letter, the very central words of this letter, they fall in the middle of verse 10 of chapter 3. They are four words that form a promise from Christ to each of his people. I will keep you. And those are the four words that I want for us to focus on this morning. This promise from Christ to his people, invites believers who are fretting over the weakness of their grip on him to find deep rest in the knowledge of the strength of his grip on you, on us. We're not to fret over the weakness of our grip on him. We're to rest and find confidence in the strength of his grip on us. And once again, this letter ends in verse 13 with the the refrain, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this reminds us that this is not just encouragement for those believers at Philadelphia in the first century. This encouragement is from the risen Christ for us this morning. It's for you, Jesus, our great high priest, whose name is love, coming alongside to encourage us to keep going in the knowledge that he will keep us. Now, to help us know this rest, Jesus reminds us in this letter that at every stage of our salvation, it is his work that provides the foundation for our assurance. He saves He sustains, and he sees us all the way home to heaven. And we're going to walk through the letter and just see see these three stages of salvation that are highlighted in the letter, and see how at every stage we are to rest all our hope. The beginning of our salvation, being sustained in the middle, and end time glorification. We're to rest all of our hope in Christ's saving, sustaining, and glorifying work. So that's going to be our simple outline this morning. He saves, he sustains, he sees us through to the end. In verse 7, if you look down, we're told first in the introduction that these are the words of the Holy One. Just allow that to sink in for a moment. These are the words of the Holy One. Around 30 times in the book of Isaiah, God is called the Holy One of Israel, or just referred to as the Holy One. Here, at the introduction, the beginning of this letter, Jesus is named as the Holy One. This is to make us Pause for a moment and recognize that these are the authoritative words of the divine, holy Son of God. That's whose presence we're in right now, who speaks through his living word to living Christians. 
These are the words of the Holy One. This Holy One is also in verse 7 called the True One. The words of the Holy One, the True One. The Greek word there could also be translated the Trustworthy One. This holy and powerful Son of God is totally trustworthy. All his words are faithful and true. They are edifying, nourishing, helpful, sustaining for us. This introduction is designed to build our confidence in what he's about to say. But before he speaks, verse 7 tells us one more thing about Jesus here in the introduction. He is the one, we are told, who has the keys of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now this is an allusion to a passage in Isaiah 22, where there God spoke of a coming servant who would be given the key to the house of David. And in Isaiah 22, 22, it's easy to remember because it's 22, 22, we read, this coming servant shall open, none shall shut, he shall shut, and none shall open. So this is a direct allusion to Isaiah 22 in Revelation 3, And this language of the one who has the key of David, it means the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, has all authority over the entrance to God's kingdom. The key of David in Isaiah is shorthand for the one who grants access to God's people, to God's kingdom people. There is only one entrance way, one entry door into the kingdom of God, and written on that door is the name Jesus. He has all authority over the entrance to God's kingdom. If he opens the door, none can shut it. If he shuts the door, none can prize it open. So this introduction tells us these are the words of the Holy One, the trustworthy one, the one who has all authority over the entrance into God's kingdom. And now we hear what this one says in verse 8. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now in this instance, when Jesus says, I know your works, he is saying, I know everything about you. And here I believe this is Jesus especially pointing to the fact that he knows the reality of the depths of our sins. He knows the depths of depravity within us. He knows the depths of our natural rebellion against him. He knows about our fear of man, our self-centeredness, our laziness, our doubts, our sexual immorality. He knows about our greed. He knows the secret thoughts that we're ashamed of. 
I know your works, he says, and yet, look at what he says. Behold, I've set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Jesus is speaking here to Christians of the amazing good news that is the gospel of his grace. This holy and trustworthy one has made a way for us sinners to enter into the kingdom of God and into the presence of the Holy One. That way is Jesus himself. Do you remember what he said in John 10 verse 9? I am the door. You can't get much clearer than that. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Let's be crystal clear. The only way any one of us can enter the kingdom of God is by walking through the faith door that says, Christ alone. There are no back doors into God's kingdom. There is no way into a saving relationship with God apart from trusting Jesus Christ. If you do not have faith in Jesus Christ, the door to the kingdom of God is shut to you. You're outside of it. Jesus says, Behold, I've opened a door to you that no one can shut. And the question we have to ask ourselves is, will we run to Christ, run into God's kingdom through Christ before it's too late? If you're here and you're not a Christian, you need to run for your life now. You need to run to Christ now. You need to look to Christ now. And Jesus here says, he knows our sins. And yet he came to pay the debt to save us from our sins by his death on the cross. Like kitchen roll absorbs a spill, Jesus absorbs God's wrath against our sin. Our sin is the spill, if you will. Christ absorbs our sin. He absorbs the wrath of God through his death on the cross. He shields us from God's just judgment. He wrings out that wrath and justification and salvation. He wrings it out in the grave. He rises again to give us life. Just before Jesus died, after those hours of darkness where he absorbed God's wrath against our sin, just before he expired, he cried out, finished. And in Mark 15, 38, we read that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This big curtain that signified the way into the presence of the Holy of Holies, the way into the presence of the Holy One is closed. But when Jesus died, and he cried out, it's finished, I've paid the debt, I've satisfied God's judgment. 
This was Jesus throwing open the door to the kingdom of God, into the presence of the Holy One. You know, some of us might say, look, I could never be a Christian. Steve, you don't know the depths of what I've done or the depths of the sin in my heart. Jesus says, I know. I know the worst of you. And yet, I've opened a door for you to come. I know the worst of you. And yet, the door in me is open for you to come. And the question is, will we come? But if we're believers, here's the point that I want to make for us. We are to rest in his finished work by faith, knowing that if we trust in Christ, God will never count our sins against us. Sometimes, you've heard me say this many times, we can give way as Christians to living under this low-level cloud of guilt. We feel we haven't performed well, or we feel we're out of a pattern of Bible reading or prayer, and we just feel we're rubbish And nearly every day we live there under this low-level sense of guilt. Do you think God wants you to be there? The answer is no. God the Father sent his Son to break that gray sky of condemnation and condemning thoughts. He wants to bring us out from under that gray sky of guilt and condemnation, and he wants us to live our whole lives under the blue sky of his grace. And the only way you can live there is if you preach the gospel to yourself every day. Today, I wake up. What gives me the right to stand in this pulpit and minister the word this morning? Christ alone. That's my only hope. When Satan tempts me to despair, when he throws the guilt at me, when he says, you're unworthy to be up there speaking, what's my hope? Christ alone. Christ alone. His righteousness is my hope for standing in front of you this morning. It's the only thing that gives me any right to be here, Christ's righteousness. So here's what we want to see right at the beginning of this letter. Christ alone is our hope for salvation. Him alone, he saves. He wants us to know right at the beginning, I'm the open door that no one can shut. And if you run through me, you will be saved. There's nothing else you need to do other than repent and trust in Christ. But in the middle of our Christian lives, we also need to recognize that the beginning of our salvation is not just secured in Christ alone by trusting in him, but our salvation is sustained by trusting in Christ's promise to keep us. And that's what we see secondly in this passage. He doesn't just save, he sustains. After pointing to himself as our access into God's kingdom, now we see Jesus described as the one who keeps us in the kingdom. Notice again these two words in the middle now of verse 8, I know. Here, this is Jesus saying, or speaking not of his knowledge of our sins, but of his perfect knowing of all the things that are going on in our lives that have a draining effect on our faith and our spiritual stamina. Jesus says, I know 
that you have but little power, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Isn't it so encouraging to hear the words of the holy and trustworthy one to each of us this morning? I know. I know your burdens. I know your loneliness. I know all about your secret fears. I know your secret disappointments. I know about your depression, your anxiety. I know how the next month ahead is hard for you. I know that you have little power, says Jesus, and yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. This is a beautiful commendation from Jesus to his people. He's saying, I know you've been worn down by various trials, but you've kept trusting me. You've kept seeking to honor my name. And I think we can step back and just see the beauty of the character of Jesus here. In the book of Isaiah, we're told a bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. I know as the pastor of this church that there are some bruised reeds in front of me this morning and some faintly burning wicks. You feel bruised and you feel just like the light's about to go out and the fire in your heart. Well, hear Jesus coming alongside saying, I know I know that you have little power, but I also know you've kept my name. You've not denied my name. You've kept my word. Jesus knows when we need to be handled gently. He knows that those in the church at Philadelphia, they need encouragement. And he knows that you need encouragement this morning. And perhaps you might hear him and hear the Spirit speaking through him this morning, saying, I know that you have little power but keep going. You haven't denied my name. You've kept my word. Keep going. After these beautiful words of encouragement, Jesus gives three promises then in this section of the letter to help the believers keep going even in the midst of their weakness. First, essentially, he says, keep going because your vindication is coming soon. Verse 9, We learn that the Christian community in Philadelphia were experiencing persecution from the Jewish community in the city. Jesus says, these Jews are not my people. They're instruments in Satan's hand, like a synagogue of Satan here to discourage you. Jesus says to those discouraged and maligned Christians then and to those today who feel discouraged and maligned, a day is coming when all opponents to the gospel and Christ's church will be humbled and they will recognize that you're a people that I have loved. Isn't it beautiful the way Jesus puts that at the end of verse 9? They will learn that I have loved you. All opponents to the gospel, opponents to Christ's people, all of our of those hardships that come from different sources in the end All unbelievers will look at Christ's church and say, look at how Christ loved his people. Vindication is coming soon for God's people. This is true for us. And this truth can liberate us greatly from feeling like we have to seek vengeance every time for wrongs that have been done to us. 
The truth that a day of vindication is coming for God's people liberates us actually from the temptation to be unforgiving. In 1 Peter 2.23, we're told that we're to follow Christ's example. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is so helpful. Of course, we're not to be doormats as Christians. But when we are tempted to seek personal vengeance or when there are wrongs that we just can't put right and we're tempted to give in to bitterness. We can hear these words and see the example of Christ. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. A day of vindication is coming for God's people where all wrongs will be put right. This reminds us and sets us free This reminds us that we don't have to punish those who've offended us. When we are hit, we don't have to hit back. This reminds us that all sin will ultimately be punished either in Christ or in the sinner who will face a holy God's full wrath. In 1 Peter 5.10, we are reminded that after the sufferings of this world, Peter says, after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So Jesus here points to the fact that his beleaguered saints can have hope because there's a day coming when their trials will will end. All trials have an expiry date. And Jesus wants his people to keep going, knowing that their day of vindication is coming. Second, he encourages them to keep going, knowing that he will keep them. Verse 10, because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. This is a wonderful promise to all of those who are trusting in Christ and in his word. The hour of trial here in verse 10 speaks of the end time tribulations which had already started in the first century and would become worse as the return of Christ neared. This does not refer to an end time rapture where Jesus will snatch his people away so that they don't experience tribulation and trials. This speaks of Jesus' spiritual protection of believers through the tribulations of the last days. And remember, last days in Scripture refers to the whole period between Christ's first coming and his second coming. In John 17, 15, Jesus prayed to the Father saying, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Keep them, exactly the same word used in Revelation 3. Jesus promises to keep his people. That is, he will hold tightly onto his people through all the trials and tribulations of this life. For the genuine child of God, 
There is no trial that will shake you so hard as to shake you out of Christ's grip. Nothing is stronger than the hand of Christ that holds you fast. Jesus made this so clear in John 10, 27 and 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And then he says, I and the Father are one. This is wonderful. So one sovereign hand of omnipotence, Christ holds us, and then wrapped around that, another hand of sovereign omnipotence holds us, the Father, and lest we make some Trinitarian error, Jesus just says, and I and the Father are one. Held by a sovereign God. Or John 6.39. Jesus says this is the will of him who sent me. That I shall lose none of all those he has given me. But raise them up at the last day. From these texts we derive what we call the doctrine of the preservation of the saints. It is not possible for any true sheep, any true child of God to lose their salvation because being kept by Christ is part of the salvation package. Why are we told this over and over and over again in Scripture? Because our God does not want us fretting over the weakness of our grip on Him. He wants us to rest in the strength of His grip on us. Do you understand the difference? When you're sitting thinking, it's up to me to hang on. It's up to me to keep going. You will fret if all your hope is there. Instead, you, you make a slight adjustment within and say, actually, I'm to rest all my hope on Christ's promise, I will keep you. You rest all your hope, all your faith there. You rest in Christ's promise to keep you. Here is our greatest hope for making it through the tribulations and trials of this fallen world and not making shipwreck of our faith. The faithfulness of Christ to keep his promise. That's our hope for making it through to heaven. Not our tenacity and our stickability our ultimate foundation of hope is we have a savior who says, I will save you alone. I'll do it by myself. I will save you. And he says, I will keep you. And our hope is to just trust that he'll be faithful. Rest all your faith here, weary Christian. What's your hope for salvation? Christ alone. What's your hope for being sustained? Christ alone. So Christ saves us. Christ sustains us. And then we see that Christ sees us safely all the way home. Do you see how in verse 11 he points to the return that 
that he's coming back. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. Now this promise of his return and call to hold fast what we have reminds us of something important. That though he has promised to keep us, we are still to be active as we are sustained by Christ. What do I mean? Well, you could be tempted to say, right, well, if Christ's going to keep me, I can just get totally sloppy in my walk with God. I don't need to worry about discipline. Don't need to worry about Bible reading. Don't need to worry about prayer. He's going to keep me. You, I can just let go and let God make it happen. And then suddenly you drift away and you're blaming God. No, we are to be like those athletes that Paul speaks of in 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25. We are to run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Think the Olympics coming up. I love the Olympics, can't wait. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. Olympic athletes working, giving their whole lives to get a temporary medal that will not last. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. We are still called to run in such a way as to get the prize. We are to be disciplined. We are to make use of the means of grace. We're to read our Bibles. We're to pray. We're to take seriously corporate worship. All the places where we are sustained by Christ, kept by Christ, corrected by Christ. If we do not put ourselves under the beams of his sustaining grace, how can we expect to be sustained? We do this keeping an eternal perspective in view, the one who says, I'm coming soon. Keep going. He's going to see us safely all the way to our home. He saves us. He sustains us. He sees us all the way home. And look now how in verse 12, he speaks of the work he will do to glorify his people in heaven. That is to settle them into their eternal rest. He says two things that he will do as part of the glorification of believers, the settling them into heaven. Number one, I will make them a pillar in the house of my God in the temple of my God. You see that there in verse 12. This conveys the truth that we who are in Christ will be vital and flourishing parts of the new creation to come. Our place in the new heavens and new earth will be permanent and stable. Never shall we go out from this place, we are told in verse 12. Then Jesus says, not just will I make my people a pillar, a stable, foundational part of the house of my God. Then he says, secondly, he will write on us. He says he will write on his people the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and my own new name. Now this is all about belonging. Our kids, when a new school year comes round, um, get, we, you, have to name everything, you have to name tag everything. And, and thankfully, Lindsay does the lion's share of this. But even individual pencils, colouring pencils, like 30 of them. You have to put a wee thing on and then the tape on it, and it's the footiest wee job in the world. Like, I would test the patience of the greatest saint in the world. 
But you put the name on the belonging to show this belongs to Hudson Ald, Elliot Ald, Grace Ald. This is Jesus saying, I'm going to put my name on my people so that they will never be in any doubt they belong to me. They belong in heaven. This is their home. Their citizenship is here. They never have to fear being kicked out. They'll never go out from here. There's never going to be any reversal of all my promises of the beauty and blessing of the new heavens and new earth. They belong here. They belong to me. This is their home. That's why Jesus says all of these wonderful things. I'll write the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, my own new name. You see, we'll never be lost. No one will ever wonder who... Who's this person belong to? Because the name of our God, the name of the city of our God, our God's name will be written on us. But here's what I want us just to see again in closing. Christ again is the one who says he'll make all this happen. I will make them a pillar. I will write on them my new name. What is your hope for this being done for you? Christ alone. He saves. And we are to rest all our hope on him for our salvation. Nothing of our merit. His merit. We rest in his finished work. He sustains. What's our ultimate foundational hope for being kept? His promise. I'll keep you. In the end, what's our ultimate hope for being glorified? being made pillars in the house of God, being written on, belonging to God, Christ doing it for us. He saves, he sustains, he secures our place in heaven. Now, back to the story I started with. At the hospital bedside of a weary saint who had spent many years walking with Christ, And he rested his head back on that pillow and he was reminded of the truth that it was not ultimately his ability to hang on to Christ in that moment that counted, but Christ's faithfulness in hanging on to him. He rested and he died and went home to the Lord. Did Jesus for a second lose his grip of George Dorman? No. Held him in salvation, took his hand, walked him through life, never letting go, held him through the valley of the shadow of death and took him to the place prepared for him. What an incredible savior. The beginning of our salvation finds its foundation in him. The middle, where's our hope for being kept? It's him. In the end, glorification, what's our hope? He'll do what he promised. Are you resting all your hope in Christ? Do you have assurance that is based on Christ? Or are you still worried because you're basing your hope of getting there in the end on you? Or are you here and you're not a Christian and you're outside of the kingdom of God and the door seems shut to you? Well, there is an open door for you now in Christ. Will you run to him? Or will you pray this morning that you will more fully rest in him? Well, let's let the words of verse 13 once again minister to us as we close. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You know, the, 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 the moment that came upon George Dorman will come upon every single one of us. We will have a moment when every one of us are in our last moments on this earth. I find it so encouraging as a pastor, as I've been present in those moments, when I see the incredible grace of Christ, sometimes tangible sense of Christ taking his people by the hand and holding them in death, holding them through it. Do you know, it actually helps me immensely when I think of my own death. When I see the grace of Christ and that we're never left to go through that moment alone. Every one of us are going to have that moment. Do you not want to be able to put your head back in the pillow and to smile behind your oxygen mask knowing, yes, the one who held me, took hold of me in salvation, and who's held me through life, he's not going to let go of me now. And you rest there forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the precious words of Isaiah 41.10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Father, thank you that you've promised not just to save us through your Son, but to sustain us through your Son. And also, you guarantee that we will be seen safely home to heaven and glorified there. All our hope rests, Father, on your Son. All our hope rests on your son. Thank you for how liberating that is. But we know it does not give us an excuse for sloppiness. So help us to be faithful in trying to run our race with perseverance. But may the foundation of our hope in Christ's promise to keep us be a beautiful resting place. A place where we find deep assurance and help. Even when we are confronting our own deaths, may we... Rest in that moment in the sufficiency of Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Amen. Well, we're going to respond by singing of this incredible hope that when we have fears that our faith will fail, Christ will hold us fast. Let's stand to sing.
again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Please do be seated. And if I can just remind you... At the